This week on Writers Inc. So for whatever reason, headlines, real world things capture my attention. You know, the whole basis of Frankie Elkin was an article I read in the BBC. And I was like, that's just fascinating to me. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Zach, um, Microsoft, big news here. They bought Writer's Inc. <laughs> I wish. They, they, they obviously have the money to do it. So, you know, but, uh, but no, yeah, I wanted to, uh, I guess we'll start right there. Yeah, I, I thought it'd be interesting to bring this up, and JD hadn't heard about it. But, uh, you know, a, a, as you guys know, I'm a big video game person, but I think that this actually is very relevant to just media in general. But uh, yesterday, as we record this, um, Microsoft bought Activision and Blizzard, um, which are two of the biggest gaming companies out there, for $68.7 billion. <laughs> Um, wow. Just to put that in perspective, Disney bought Star Wars for four billion. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was a huge acquisition. And what's crazy is that Microsoft did it. It's uh, they haven't put out all the details yet, but like a lot of times, you know, when these acquisitions happen, there's stocks getting traded and all this stuff. Microsoft is paying cash, so um, they have a lot of liquid money. Um, but basically, they're buying these two companies. Uh, or it's really one company under one umbrella, but to get all the IPs. I mean, so now Microsoft and Xbox uh, owns Call of Duty, which is the big thing they get out of it. Um, Candy Crush, uh, which a lot of people are overlooking, but is actually a big deal. I mean, on the mobile market, makes a ton of money. Um, World of Warcraft. I mean, it, the list goes on and on of the IPs they're getting from this. Um, and it's 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 fascinating like uh and 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 a lot of people might be saying well why is this relevant well this is a content play and it just shows how important like these these big companies and stuff like getting content is i mean like uh, and, and here's what's really interesting about it is that microsoft their big play right now is their xbox game pass subscription service and now they're going to be able to make call of duty which had the two best-selling games last year um, for all of all in the gaming are going to be under Microsoft. They can make them Xbox exclusive at now where people on other systems can't play them and put them on their Game Pass service they have for 15 bucks a month. So like imagine if Amazon bought Penguin Random House and then was like the only way you can read any books under Penguin Random House would be to buy Kindle Unlimited now because we're locking it behind that. Um, it's fascinating. It's and it's really. I think it says a lot about you know. I mentioned the Disney deal earlier about where some of these big media companies are going, where they are buying up content and to to pay sixty eight billion dollars. I mean, it's it's pr it's a pretty monumental deal and has a, it's going to have a lot of implications. Yeah, I I was reading up on it a little bit today, and it's not just the biggest 
video game deal. It's the biggest tech deal ever. Biggest, yep, biggest tech deal ever. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's it. The numbers are are just mind boggling. The, the question well, I have is, is is the government going to allow Microsoft to do this? Yeah. Like, is there going to be some type of, you know, play against um, collusion or monopoly or whatever you want to call it? I don't know anything about it, but it just seems like one of those instances where the government would say, you just can't do that. I think I think they're probably going to let this go through. What is interesting about it and is I heard today and I meant to look up this number to see if it was correct, but it was from a pretty reliable source that I follow. Um, but even with even with this acquisition, um, Xbox's hold on the gaming industry is only like twelve percent. So I think that that's going to that that says two things. For one, it says how much Sony has been particularly kicking their butt in that industry over the past several years, but also how big gaming is <laughs> and, and mobile gaming especially is, is so huge and such a, a revenue generator. Um, and, and so I don't like, I don't know if the government would look at that and be like, well, they don't own that much of the market share. So no, that's actually, if, if it goes that route, that's going to be the argument Microsoft is going to yeah. use. They're, they're going to say, well, we need to do this in order to compete with the other companies that are out there like Sony. You know, we're not going to be able to compete in this marketplace if we don't. Um, and honestly, like if you look back at history, the only way the government would probably stop something like this is if it created a monopoly. Um, and in this case, that that's not what's happening. Now, if, if this happened, this deal goes through and then like Sony, Sony tried to buy this from Microsoft, you know, like five years from now, like that would probably be stopped because that would create the, that monopoly situation. But right now it's going to, you know, it's going to create competition just on a much bigger level, probably squeeze out a lot of the, the little smaller guys that are, you know, still trying to, to hang on. But yeah, that's huge. And yeah, like you, you, you know, said at the beginning, it's, it's all about content, you know, in, in this world right now, you know, whoever owns that content and Microsoft, as big as they are, I mean, they've, they've got Windows, they've got Office, you know, they've got the, their Xbox platform and then that's kind of it. So they're, you know, they're looking to, to branch out and if this is, you know, subscription based stuff like this is, is huge um, and this can line their coffers for, for a lot of years. Yeah. And there's a lot of other aspects to it. Like there was a there's a whole metaverse play to it and they're looking into nfts and all this type of stuff too like there's it's it but it's a very long term play for them but i just think overall it's just interesting to see where things are going because i mean whether we like it or not i mean our digital world is going towards subscriptions it's going towards who owns the content you know and it's I don't know. It's just going to be interesting to see where things go from here on out for movies, books, games, whatever. Nice. So. Nice. Speaking of content, uh, I don't I don't want to spoil anything, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but uh, Station Eleven, I don't know if you guys were watching <laughs> that. Um, what an incredible production. Uh, just, yeah. um, you know, based on the book, I forget her name. Is it Emily St. Mandel? Yeah, Emily St. John Mandel. St. John Mandel, yeah. 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 Uh, Station Eleven, and, and this book came out twenty sixteen. Two thousand eleven. Oh, was it that long 2014, ago? Two thousand fourteen, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I should know. It's my favorite book, so I should. I should. I yeah, should know. It's so. it's an incredible. Uh, it's a post-apoc story, but it's not like any post-apoc story you've ever seen. It's it's so well done. I'd hi- I highly recommend it. I, I know one of the producers on it. And I'm, I'm trying to get him on the show because the, the the uphill battle that he had to go through in order to get this done it was it crazy. Because um, this this has been going on for for years, um, you know, long before you know COVID and all that hit. But production basically started around the same time COVID started, um, and they they were able to to truck through that and, and get it done, get it in the can, and get it on the air. 
um, extremely difficult process. And I, I emailed him, but it's, it sounds like he's still on the backside of that, probably working it all out in therapy. And it might be a couple months before he's willing to talk about it. Uh, but I'm going to get him on here for sure to, to, to fill us all in, because I think a lot of people just don't realize, you know, just what it takes in order to get, you know, a show like this all the way to the finish line. And we're, we're getting a glimpse of that with you, with Hugh Howie, you know, weighing in on what's going on with Wool. Um, but but this one in particular, because, you know, at, at the beginning of COVID, especially on the Hollywood side, everything was just so unknown. And, you know, this was a big production, a lot of money, a lot of moving parts involved. And, you know, somebody had to pull that trigger or, or cancel it. You know, they had to make that judgment call. And, and you know, luckily they, they stuck with it. Um, but, yeah, great show. And it's, it's amazing to see it finally get to the end. I, ironic about a show about a flu wiping out humanity that, it, <laughs> you know, went through all that trouble at the beginning of COVID. But. But it's it's amazing. Anyway, if it's on HBO Max, um, it's original to there. As I mentioned, it's my favorite book ever. I mean, I, Station Eleven is amazing, and the the show did it really great justice. Uh, it's only ten episodes. It's only a limited time thing. There was, as far as I know, there's not going to be another season. I mean, I don't know how they could. I mean, it's it says a limited limited series. So, uh, and as Jay said, it's a it's post-apoc and it's like a post-apoc setting, but it's so much more than that. I mean, it's a, this character driven mystery and how these characters connect. It's incredible. So everyone should definitely check it out and read the book. The book is great. Cool. What are you guys working on? JD, what do you got going on this week? I'm dealing with German roaches. (laughs) (laughs) So if I sound weird, it's because I'm I'm still stuck in Georgia. I'm in the hotel room right now. Um, So we bought this giant property out here. Um, It's it's a lodge. I mean, it's like 10 bedrooms. I think my wife counted like the listing didn't even have everything on there, Um, like six, six bathrooms. It's a couple different buildings, but one main building, which is, you know, is the the main lodge. Um, And it's been a rental for for many years. Um, apparently that the people that stayed there over the, the Christmas holidays somehow brought in something called German roaches, which I have never heard of before, but I have been highly educated on over the last couple of days. So it's a type of roach that can't exist outside. They don't live in the wild at all. They, they have they basically live in houses. So somehow a couple of these guys, you know, got in on, in their, these people's luggage, like they, they brought it into the house. Um, now the owner, the former owner of this house knew this. Um, his cleaning person, you know, spotted these roaches when she was cleaning up after these people left, called them and told them. And his his response was, well, I just sold it. It's not my problem in two weeks. Just let it go. So these roaches have had a couple of weeks to a month to, to basically propagate and kind of take over an empty house. So we have got exterminators, fumigators, anybody willing to spray some type of poison running through every single nook and cranny in that place. Um, and on top of that, my wife is talking to contractors because we've got it hasn't been renovated in a, a very long time. So we're going to probably have to put I'm guessing about 150 to 200,000 into just getting it up to you know 2022 uh, before we can start renting it again. So it's, it's basically a money pit for the next two months. We're just going to be throwing throwing cash at it, um, to hopefully get it to the point where we can turn it around and, and start renting it back out again. Um, the tricky part is we're, we're out of here tomorrow. We're, we're flying back to, to New Hampshire. So we're going to have to manage this entire process, you know, crews and contractors and stuff running around. We're going to have to do that remotely, um, which is going to be fun. Can't, can't Are wait. you going to get German contractors? <laughs> I, I think you have to. I, I think it's a union thing. If you have German roaches, you need German contractors. So, Are we'll they? <laughs> I just imagine all these roaches coming in, riding little Mercedes around your house <laughs> or something, little BMWs. Drinking beer. I, I, I imagine they're pissed because they had this giant house all to themselves and all of a sudden the humans are coming along trying to rush them out. They're probably not very happy about it. It's got great mountain views. Roachtoberfest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We could we go sh- on and we on. We could. Let's on. not. <laughs> no. I used to work with a, for a German company, so, you know. 
Oh, then it's your fault. Hey, we love the Germans. Just saying. Just if, hey, if you're <laughs> out there in Germany, we love you. <laughs> just not your roaches. Just not your roaches. Take those home. <laughs> anyway, this week on Writer's Inc. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on, Zach? Uh, not much the last few days between uh, snow and ice days with the kid being home and me having put my back out and barely being able to sit very long. So um, it's just been madness around here so but uh you know still i'm I'm still getting along on our uh on on dead south still you know working on working on that as much as i can um getting things together finally for our witches of salem anthology so getting that back out to the authors and stuff so we can get all that stuff out and uh yeah that's been pretty much it so hopefully uh you know i can make it through this podcast sitting down in this chair with the way my back's been feeling so you know, I'm old, guys. <laughs> oh, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I'm so old. Uh, I'm in denial right now. Uh, I, I sent uh, I sent a draft to. I guess he's my alpha reader. He's my ideal reader. Uh, the the Bigfoot project, and uh, he absolutely loved it when I first sent it to him. And then I made some big changes, and I sent it to him, and now he hates it. <laughs> and I'm, oh no! And I'm just in that. I'm just in that mode where, like, I just had to close the file and set it aside, yeah. and be like, I need a day or two just to not even look at it, look at the comments. Like, and and as JD has mentioned before, um, I think with with your wife and other and alpha readers, like, you know, they're right. Like, you just you just have to like you just got to suck it up and and be like they're right, and you, and that's kind of where I am right now. Like, I know. I know exactly what he's talking about. I think I knew it before I sent it to him, and I thought I was fooling myself and fooling him, and and I didn't. So uh, I have a project in the balance. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but uh, I can't deal with I mean, it right it now. Is it fixable? It's it's probably not. Like it would have to be Ugh. probably be a whole rewrite. Um, so I mean, the, I guess the good news is is I'm only like forty or fifty thousand words in, as opposed to hundred thousand. You know. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a full rewrite, or I'm just going to have to change the the scope of the project in a way that's going to make it not what it was. So I, I know for me personally, I usually feel that you know in the gut, like as I'm as I'm writing, like I kind of know that I'm going off in a yep. slightly wrong direction, but I kind of force myself to keep going yep. anyway. Um, so you knew that as you were you were going, and you, yeah. So that that's that's the thing. I mean, it's one of those you know as you get deeper into this profession, you have to learn to listen to that that voice, you know, because you kind of tell yourself, you know, like. This doesn't 100% feel right, but I, I still think it's right for the book. I'm going to keep going, and you keep throwing the words on there, keep throwing the words on there, and you figure, well, maybe it's just you. You know, the readers won't even pick up on this at all, um, but but they do, and it's like, you, you know, you're a reader too. You know, you, you enjoy reading stories. You enjoy hearing stories. That That's why that it's setting off the alarm bell, uh, yet you have to learn to listen to that and answer it, and and I've, I'm totally guilty of doing that too. I mean, we've talked about it, you know, where I've, I've you know, thrown 20, 30,000 words out at a time. Um, but yeah, that, that's, you know, that's basically me finally admitting that voice was right, you know, taking those pages, throwing them off to the side and, and trying to fix it if, if it's fixable. Sometimes the best answer is to walk away. And a lot of times you'll find, you know, it may seem impossible to fix now, six months from now, the idea to, to correct it may pop right into your head. You know, those kind of things tend to come to, you know, come at you when you're not, you know, focused on them. So yeah, we'll see what happens. that's, that's true. I, I think one of the, one of the saving graces that, that the reason I'm not in a complete meltdown is because I've learned now that I need the I need that feedback as I'm going through the process. So like five, ten years ago, I would have written the whole novel or whole series before I gave it to an alpha reader, and then then I may I may have wasted a hundred thousand words. The way that I'm working with this guy is I was sending him sections at a time, like twenty 
20,000 words at a time. Um, and, and so now I'm not so, so deep into it where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mourning the opportunity uh, cost there. It, it's early enough that I'm like, well, okay, you know, better, better to have this problem now than to be 100,000 or 150,000 words into this and have the same problem pop up. Yes, sir. So that's that. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we take care of some business uh, so we can get some ice and some heat onto Zach's back and get him back into shape here. I want to give a nice shout out to our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life, who they uh, empower you to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. So if you want to set your price, if you want to have access to international markets and do all of that without any exclusivity, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com and get started today. Also want to give a wonderful shout out to all of our patrons. If you would like to become a patron and submit questions to our monthly Q&A episodes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. And that brings us to this week's guest, JD. We've got Lisa Gardner back. She's got a new novel out. It just came out on uh, January 18th. It's called One Step Too Far. Um, second in series about her, her character Frankie Elkin, who's a, a very interesting character, basically a woman who searches for missing persons. Um, I, I love the first one. The, the second one, I, I feel that you know, she, she upped the game on, on that one for sure. It's, it's even better. Uh, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. Here she is, Lisa Gardner. Okay, Lisa, it's been about a year since we talked. I'm wondering if you have an updated body count on how many friends you've killed over the past year. Ooh, this is good. Um, let's see. In the making of this novel, yeah, there was some killing indeed. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, there's no better way to say I love you than to kill someone off in a book. I'm standing by that. Literary immortality, that's what I have to offer. For sure, for sure. <laughs> uh, for the listener who uh, may have forgotten our, our first conversation, can you explain how you kill your friends? So if you go to lisagardner.com, you can nominate anyone of your choice, including yourself, some people do, for the Kill a Friend Mama Buddy Sweepstakes. And yes, my new latest novel, One Step Too Far, has uh, two different winners who um, have different roles to play in the emergence of the book and, you know, die grand deaths when the occasion calls for it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of those. Uh, have you... Have you ever gotten one of uh, a request that's sort of made you lift an eyebrow or or think twice before you considered it? Well, I've gotten some very funny requests. I've been very lucky okay. so far. The girlfriend made about buddy sweepstake has been in great fun. So one of them was way on in the early days. A woman had nominated her husband. So I did have to kind of go back and say, well, you do understand this is fictional and this is meant to be fun. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I don't want to be testifying at a divorce court anytime soon. It's just like, no, no, he's totally in on it. In fact, he wants to die. He just wants you to make him a badass first. So I did. I made him this huge guy, bald head, tattoos all over the place. Then I killed him. They were both very happy with the finished results. Okay. I mean, okay. like, so, I mean, so it's interesting what works for people, but I mean, again, not here to judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine like uh, you getting a call from like the FBI, you know, someone who's looking for a hitman, and, and they stumble upon your website. You're like, no, no, it's just fiction. <laughs> I did have a woman who won and then was so horrified because she actually wanted to nominate her daughter. She's like, but I can't really kill her. That sends the wrong message. And I'm like, I'm thinking that's not the best message either. So we made her daughter a neurosurgeon. So oh, everyone okay. was happy in the end. Okay. But I was kind of like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of think as I love you, 
message, um, I killed you in a book, maybe not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, let's talk about the new book, One Step Too Far. Uh, As as you're listening to this, it's probably out or just came out. So uh, really excited about it. Uh, Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us the the premise of the story. Oh, crap. I hate the elevator pitch. Okay. (laughs) So Frankie Elton, who is my kind of amateur sleuth, but kind of has dedicated her life to working missing persons cold cases, is brought to Wyoming, where a young man has gone missing. And now there's a, a designated search party of eight, basically organized by the young man's father, to go in the woods and really, if anything, bring home his body so the family can have closure. Let me just put it this way. Eight people head into the woods. Eight people do not come back out. I kind of refer to it as, and then there were none, goes for a hike. <laughs> That's nice. I like that. Very well done. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit more about Frankie. This is uh, the second Frankie Elkin book, correct? Yes. So Frankie's been really a lot of fun for me. For years and years and years, I wrote a bunch of books that were never supposed to be series, but somewhat became series. So there was Detective Dee Dee Warren, and then I had Tess Leone and this Vigilante Floridane. And then one day I read this article in real life about a woman who has dedicated her entire life to finding minority missing people. The sense of these are the cases that are falling through the cracks. No one's even looking. And one of the interesting things when you start looking at missing persons cold cases is, I mean, the the evidence has been collected. If that had the answers, well, they would have had them by now. I mean, questions have been answered by the cops. If they were going to get the answers, they would have had them by now. So interesting enough, a lay person, an outsider, the right person asking the right questions at the right time, interesting enough, can be a huge change in these cases and really break open the case. And that inspired me. I'd never written books with an everyday person. And one of the things I love about Frankie is she's us. She's not a computer hacker. She's not kick-ass. She's not badass. She is a middle-aged woman, a recovering alcoholic I mean, she jokes she has more regrets than belongings. And this is what she does now. This is frankly how she stays sober. She goes from town to town and she immerses herself in these worlds and she tries to solve other people's problems, even when she's not welcomed, even when no one believes her, even when everyone thinks she's crazy. And in this case of One Step Too Far, that brings her somewhat on impulse to Wyoming. She reads about this last ditch effort to try to recover this young man's body because his mother's dying of cancer. She wants to be buried with her son. And this is a very real world issue. Why don't you go missing in the woods? Cause I am a hiker. Um, after so much time, no one's looking for you anymore. I mean, it, it comes down to that kind of, you know, your family or someone organizes a search and Frankie following her impulses. is like, I'm not a hiker. I don't know anything about camping. I've never been in the woods, but what the hell? Let's do this. <laughs> and then bad things ensue. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, uh, I like the way you've, you've framed her character because, uh, especially like in the, in the one of the opening scenes where she's in the diner and, and she's yeah. clearly an outsider and, and she's yeah. clearly not wanted. And yet, there's also sort of this element, there are, there are some members of that party that will organize who recognize the benefit of having that outside perspective. Uh, so I think your idea of, of like not necessarily creating a superhero, but sort of the everyday person who's kind of awkward, doesn't quite fit in. It worked really well. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting to me. Frankie's definitely hit a nerve. Before she disappeared last year, kind of went, 
nuts and the pre-pub for one step too far is great. And I'm kind of curious about this. This is nothing planned at all, but I would say if anything, Frankie's superpower is she's a great listener. She's empathetic. She ends up okay in these situations because she just listens and she learns and she cares. And I somewhat think somewhat the times we live in, that's the superpower we're all missing, or that's the superhero we were around, someone who listens and cares. It's becoming a lost art. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised that you've tied that character trait to something that you're really passionate about. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the hiking. Um, I, I know that that is a, that is a hobby or a, a passion or interest that you have to pay attention to a lot of stuff. So I live in the mountains of New Hampshire. And one of the reasons I live here is I'm an avid hiker all year long. In fact, winter hiking is probably my favorite of all the seasons. So for me, for the longest time, it's been how I write a novel. You know, I, I'm a cancer, so I never know what I'm doing. So every time I get stuck, you go for a hike and walking through the woods, plotting ways of killing people, getting away with it. You know, next thing you know, you, you got your next scene. But um, recently I've had some friends like, in COVID during the pandemic, we got into more and more aggressive hikes. So as we get off the beaten path, you get out of the, off the radar, don't have cell phone ser service anymore. You're really on your own. And so basic safety protocols start to kick in. So we decided we should take a wilderness survival course. So I spent all day um, learning, you know, basically playing with fire and knives. And by the end of the day, I was like, this is too good. This is totally going to be an awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that inspired <laughs> yeah, one step too far where it's really, um, it's the mountains and it's survival, but it's also um, keeping calm under pressure. Again, Frankie is not a superhero. Stay calm, think, care about the people around you, you know, together. I mean, she's in these, this group of eight that she keeps joking is a group that's not a group, but there's some answers in there. Hiking is a group sport. Definitely want to trust the person beside you. <laughs> Do you hike alone? Only on occasion and generally with my dogs and on trails, I know I have cell service um, or trails, you know, are well populated because the truth of the matter is when you get off the grid here. And even in New Hampshire, it doesn't take you that far. I mean, all you need to do is slip and fall and twist an ankle. I mean, you can have things that are stupidity, like you weren't prepared for the conditions, but anyone can take a wrong step at any time. You don't want to be all alone way up with no means of reaching. And it's very interesting in this day and age where we are so used because of cell phones to always have access I mean, there are a fair amount of mountains and they're well-known and the trails are well-known where there is no cell service. You go into those, you're on your own. So you can crawl your way out. You can hope someone finds you. You can have a partner. And that is, I think, the preferred method <laughs> that could assist <laughs> if such things go wrong. <laughs> have you found yourself on a trail or off a trail and thought, oh, this is not good. I should probably turn back or the weather's getting bad. Like, have you had those moments where you're like, oh, this isn't feeling right? I've had minor moments of where like that hike went too long and the conditions are starting to turn and you start getting that real sense of urgency. Like, okay, this is no longer, you know, for a day hike, you know, the sun really is setting. It's getting very cold and or is now snowing and we didn't necessarily expect this. Probably the biggest almost disaster I had as a hiker was probably a more typical uh, situation. 
there was probably six of us, six ladies head off. Supposed to be a four hour hike. I don't even think I had a backpack. I think I had a bottle of water because it's, it's a four hour hike. You don't need anything. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. We had two people had knee injuries. They decided they needed to head back down because they were going to be together. We're like, okay, you two go together. The four of us will continue on. Those two got lost. They did have cell reception. So they called us to say they were lost. We're like, wait, what? And one of the heroic feats, not me, but one of my hiking companions, based on their description, she actually could get like the coordinates in her head and tell them what, what direction to walk in. But we ended up having to meet up with them, find them. I, I mean, in our four-hour hike got to hour 16. It was dark. Two people are injured. We have no headlamps. We have no coats, and it's now cold. Um, we did make it out okay, but it was the pretty classic case of, you know, we went in not just hoping for the best, but planning for the best. We should always plan for the worst. And we were not prepared. We were kind of fortunate that in the end we – hit the parking lot. And we were very grateful. <laughs> yeah, those are probably wise words in hiking and in other places as well. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's the thing you think won't be a big deal at all. It was a four hour, like, you know, I have a pack for the big stuff and I have survival gear and I have all sorts of crap, but this was just, you know, a jaunt in the woods. <laughs> That's the stuff that often, <laughs> as Frankie will tell you, it's the ordinary that often becomes very dangerous. <laughs> yes. Yes. And we'll be sure not to spoil any, any of the story, but I do want to talk about, Daisy, who might be my favorite character. Uh, tell, tell us where Daisy came from and the role that she plays in the story. So Daisy is a cadaver dog, which is, she's not just a search and rescue dog, but she has some special skills, which is to look for, you know, human remains. And some of this comes about because I had a unique opportunity years ago to visit the body farm. Now I was there in Knoxville, Tennessee to research another book entirely and had my own kind of agenda. But the fun things that happens when you get out in the world is there was another woman there also doing research, and she ran a cadaver dog team, one of the only certified teams in the world, because cadaver dogs are harder to find, search and rescue a little bit, cadavers kind of an extra step of training, and she and her team were looking for opportunities to basically train the dogs, because it's frowned upon if you bury human remains in, you know, various parks and have your cadaver dogs try to find them. <laughs> but talking to her, learning more about it, working everything from mudslides, rubble piles, 9-11, um, you know, the dogs were huge. And it was intriguing to me here to not just learn about the skill sets, but the psychology of dogs. You know, they need to be kept up. They need to be uplifted. The 9-11 search dogs started to get depressed. And one of the things volunteers did for them was hide so that they could find a living human at the end of each day to end on a good note. And it kind of brought everyone up. So ever since then, I've just been fascinated by service dogs and working canines and having had that opportunity. And then I have a local group in my own backyard that actually, Little Angel Service Dogs, that trains dogs working with them, brought us Daisy, who is, let's just face it, the heart of this hiking group headed into the mountains. And, you know, it's all arranged around her. There's nothing as good as a dog's nose. Even the head guide of the expedition is like, everything we do will be about Daisy, the dog. She will tell us where we're going. And when she needs to rest, we will rest. <laughs> you know, what the dog needs, the dog gets. The rest of us are kind of window dressing at this point, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about uh, any type of uh, uh, dog assistant in that way until I read your book. And and this idea that, you know, 
that Daisy has a, a personality and, and, and she can get depressed and get down and that they're, they're trying to balance finding the missing person with keeping her sort of motivated and on the trail. I love these things. Like when you talk to real world experts. So I've over the years talked to a number of forensic anthropologists and it's very interesting because we're in the day and age of technology. I mean, there's electronic sniffers, there's this, there's that. And they're all tell you, I mean, as forensic anthropologists, so they're being sent out to look at bones. They'll take a dog any day of the week. And they're even mesmerized. And I mean, these are people with advanced science degrees saying, you know, creek beds, I mean, a hundred year old bone. I mean, it's dried out, fossilized. There's no organic matter left. It looks just like a twig, but the dog will hit on it every time. Wow. Like, I mean, we don't know. They don't know. No one knows. I love dogs and I have a couple. <laughs> I'll hail the dog. <laughs> Daisy is the superhero in One Step Too Far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to get a little tactical for a moment because given everything you've already said, my, log my next logical question would be, why did you set the story in Wyoming versus New Hampshire? And that's a good question that many of my New Hampshire neighbors have been asking. <laughs> <laughs> the mountains where I live are dangerous enough. And unfortunately, sadly, we have generally a couple fatalities, you know, on a, Mount Washington, I think is made famous by a book, Not Without Peril. It has claimed a number of lives. But at the end of the day, I needed actually more sources of danger. Like we don't have uh, grizzly bears, mountain lions, and we're not even that high. Uh, our danger a lot comes from the weather and that we're granite. So it's easy to slip. It's easy to fall. And that's something to be respectful of as I hike these mountains. But for this book and all the kind of pressure, I often think of a thriller novels as a boot camp. You know, you're taking your characters and then you just want to kind of throw at them you know, danger after danger, stressor after stressor, and see if they can rise to the occasion. So for that, the Western mountains were better. Um, and in particular, I homed in on Wyoming because, I mean, you want to talk about some serious mountains. Um, and then you now you have grizzly bears, you have weather even more extreme, and you have, um, you know, mountain lions, other things to be concerned of. And Wyoming is very famous also for a lot of the best trails are off map. I mean, that's when you need the guides, you need the locals, or unfortunately in this day and age, everyone's trying to do it with GPS and that is leading to a number of rescues. But <laughs> backcountry hiking, I was looking for an area with a lot of backcountry hiking. These are not the trails you're gonna just see in your you know, top 10 things to hike in Wyoming. <laughs> Did you go and hike any of those? I've gotten to hike in the West Fairmount because I come from Oregon. Because of COVID, I couldn't do specifically what I wanted to do for this book. Um, and that actually kind of killed me a little. Also, I am a hiker and I just want to hike in Wyoming more. So, <laughs> but it became kind of this combination of the hiking skills or hiking skills. You're going to use them anywhere. And then having hiked in the West, which is very different than, you know, the granite state of New Hampshire, bringing that some to play. And then I did fictionalize a few things because they're particular conditions, geography I was looking for. So there is kind of a note in the book. If, if you live in Wyoming and you're wondering what the hell is Devil's Canyon, I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have a, a really effective, um, I don't want to call it a recipe, but sort of an approach in that you are uh, you're incorporating things that you're really passionate about, like, like dogs and hiking, 
Um, and you're also doing this real world research where you have these serendipitous connections with people that sort of take you off in, in different directions. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Is that something you intentionally do or is that just kind of how you're wired? I think it's how the process has evolved for me from the very, very beginning. And my first novel is like 30 years ago now. It was based on a real world account I read in the news. So for whatever reason, headlines, real world things capture my attention. You know, the whole basis of Frankie Elkin was an article I read in the BBC. And I was like, that's just fascinating to me. And one step too far, one of these, this is too strange, but it is actually real life. Bigfoot hunters are actually some of all. They have the best data on people who've gone missing in national public lands and even our own government because they track anomalies. I'm just one of those people. When you read those things and you study those things, you're like, that's almost like too bizarre and too cool to be true, but it is. And then you're like, that's got to be a book. <laughs> so, I love that angle in the book, by the way. The Bigfoot yeah, angle is perfect. I didn't, that was not planned at all. That was one, you know, as I started to research what I was doing. And really, um, a lot of this book was inspired by reading. John Billman has this excellent nonfiction novel called The Cold Vanish about the number of people who've gone missing on our national public lands. 1,600 people. And right now, they're just gone without a trace. Again, it's volunteer-based. You've got anywhere from two to maybe 12 weeks, depending on the weather, where people are still going to look for a missing hiker, camper, a child that's won off, off from a camping trip. And then that's it. It's, it's done. They presume the worst. And, but if you're a family, you want the closure. And that, again, reading those stories, reading those accounts becomes very inspirational for me. So my writing definitely is this mix of I need to read real stuff. And I really like to talk to, um, you know, the experts, you know the, you know, the forensic anthropologist talking about, yeah, for all of my lab equipment, what I really want is a cadaver dog. They will get the job done. That kind of stuff. Then it all just goes into the hopper. And you have a book that's definitely fictional, but there's kernels of, of the real world sprinkled all throughout. <laughs> and probably the stuff you think is fiction is true, and the yeah. things you think are true are fiction. <laughs> uh, so let's let's um, help out the this uh, the stereotype of the the shy, introverted writer who's just sitting at their desk and they're just creating a story. How, how do they start reaching out to these experts and, and getting the kind of really valuable insight that you're gaining from these folks? So this is very cool. I think on lisagardner.com and the writer's tool chest, I still have an article on it. If anyone can reach out to particularly law enforcement, if you're a taxpayer, you may contact your local police and your FBI office. It's bureaucratic and it's administrative, but it, honestly, at the end of the day, it's cold calling. And I still do it to this day. It, I don't know that there's any phone call I've ever made that someone's been like, oh, Lisa Gardner, I know you. <laughs> People who do real work don't necessarily read our books, to be honest. <laughs> you know? So it's everything from the body farm. I always knew I wanted to go. I literally sent an email, kind of said, you know, I'm a thriller writer. I'd like to do some you know, I'd like to talk to you about a new book. And I got back kind of this email saying, we don't do visits, but um, we are a research facility. And if you could present with us a research proposal, we could entertain that. So I very quickly came up with my 48 hour research proposal and that was approved and I got to visit. So the keys to the, what I find are have patience, have courage. It's hard to cold call. No one likes to cold call. Um, and then start from a place of respect. 
I am writing a novel where I want to get the details of your job, the work you do right. Because people care about their jobs and they get frustrated. I read some article on fugitive tracking in a magazine. The guy had his email address at the end, so I just emailed him. I mean, his job is to like train DEA agents and FBI agents. And here I am, some suspense novelist. He's like, what? And I'm like, well, I'd like to do a book on fugitive tracking and I'd like to get the details right. And he's like, well, my job is to educate. This wasn't what I thought I would do with it, but you know, show respect for their profession. Most people want to talk about how they work. And then added bonus for law enforcement, you're working on a fictional case because they don't want to feel like they're going to get conned into talking about anything they can't talk about. So I often say, I'm going to bring you a totally fictional over-the-top crime that you're going to laugh about it, but real-world procedure for solving it. Puzzles. Law enforcement likes puzzles. Tell them you're bringing them a puzzle and they'll get more on board. (laughs) That is a great tip. I love that. (laughs) Let's talk for a minute about the publicity that you're doing uh, for One Step Too Far. Uh, One involves a benefit and some uh, furry creatures, possibly? I think we've established by now I like dogs just (laughs) <laughs> Mine are not barking at this moment, so I like them even more when we do this podcast. <laughs> yes. So a lot of my books have had to deal with social issues as well. So my publisher, Dutton, whom I adore, we've gotten into a habit of uh, doing book launch and doing some of the book events to benefit a nonprofit. And in this case, for one step too far, because we've established Daisy, our Our cadaver dog is the superhero and total star of the novel. Um, It will benefit the little angel service dogs. And they are an absolutely amazing organization here in Bartlett, New Hampshire. They train hundreds of service dogs at a time and they place them at no cost to families. And to train a service dog gets into like anywhere from 60 to $80,000 of training into them. So if you're a family and everything from seizure disorders to in this day and age, a lot of Uh, service dogs are really for anxiety. In fact, little angel service dogs took some of their dogs to California to work with the Olympic athletes while they were training last year to kind of help just calm them. So I get to do a local in-person event. The rest will be on Zoom because this is the day and age we live in. But um, we get to have a therapy dog at the book signing. And I'm like, I think all authors should like build this into their contracts now. I will do a book event if I can have a therapy dog. <laughs> <laughs> I plan on just putting Daisy on stage and saying, have her hold the book and say, hey, <laughs> enough. <laughs> enough said. <laughs> Buy this book. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, uh, Nicholas Sparks told me that every, every writer needs to write a story about a dog and Christmas. So maybe if you can get Daisy into a Christmas story, you're going to hit a home run there. I have not done Christmas yet, but now I'm very tempted. But (laughs) I have to say, I am involved in my local animal rescue organization and I've had rescued pets and that's a sweet spot for me. And I often think, especially in suspense, where we write really, really dark stories, animals or some sort of connection, it soothes it for the reader. Because you never want to burn a reader out. You never want to make something too dark or too hopeless. So if you're going to go to something like one step too far, it gets very, very intense. Some really bad things start happening. Um, You need something to mediate that. And that to me often in writing becomes a cat, a dog, um, 
the quirky character, but you need some aspect to kind of help bond both the reader and give your characters hope. We're now fighting for this because, you know, Daisy or Daisy is going to fight for us, but, you know, something to balance it all out so you don't burn people out. Yeah. Smart, smart move. Well, maybe uh, we could kind of wrap up by getting a little update on what's up with Frankie Elkin and the uh, the rights for Before She Disappeared and possibly One Step Too Far. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? So thank you very much for asking that question. <laughs> so, it just so happens <laughs> that um, I had a very exciting year last year with Before She Disappeared, which was the first Frankie Elkin novel. Hilary Swank loved the books. And after a lot of conversation and back and forth, we have officially sold the rights to her and a production company. She will be a co-producer and she wants to star as Frankie Elkin. And I have to say, I got to meet her on Zoom. This is the world we live in now. I met someone on Zoom. <laughs> we were very excited. As a little Brady Bunch picture, she's awesome. <laughs> but, um, and so the hope is to bring it as what they call a limited series, which is what we're seeing with a lot of book adaptations now. So they want to do it first and then see like who would want it, like Netflix, HBO, Amazon. You can either start with the studio or you can make it and then go to a studio. But um, so hopefully there'll be more exciting news to happen in 2022 as we start working that out. But um, if, I mean, the fact that a, a you know Academy Award winning actress wants to be my main character was a tiny bit flattering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is with Entertainment One, right? Is that the production company? Yeah, Ewan. Yep. Ewan. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. And is this uh, is this, this is for the limited series is for before she disappeared? And is it possible that might do one step too far as well? Absolutely. The thought was you take one book, and this is the thing. Now we get into these limited, you know, six episode series. Books translate very well to that format. Books to TV movies, and I've had that happen in the past. It's tricky. You're, you're taking a third of the novel to make it into a movie because a movie is really only an hour and 42 minutes, 30,000 words. Novels, 100,000 words. Get six episodes of something. Now you really get the book perspective. So like Karen Slaughter just had, a, you know, pieces of her with Tony Collette. We're seeing a lot of books being adapted now because they adapt well. And I think the viewers really like, I think one of the things books do really well is that rich character experience. And you're starting to get some really big name actors and actresses coming to the small screen for this because it's character that appeals to them. I mean, that's what they're looking for. Hillary Swank definitely resonated with the character of Frankie. And, you know, Frankie's a bit broken, a bit different, but diff just, I don't know. She's just, I created her and I can't even describe her. You can't help but like her. She's different, but you just, you root for her. And uh, so Hillary Swank was very, it spoke to her as an actress. So, so uh, JD Lisa is is just uh, she's an old school pro. She's been doing this a long time. Um, you mentioned in the front the difference between book one and book two in this series. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I honestly, I just felt like I, I got to know the character a little bit better. Um, and, I, and I enjoy the setting more, and I, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, like I know Lisa fairly well now. She, you know, she's on the board with me at ITW, um, and she lives up in the mountains a couple hours away from where I am. And I think the fact that she was able to pull from that knowledge, you know, the fact that she's an avid hiker, um, that she enjoys that world, like that, you know, those, those little tidbits really came out in the storytelling. 
Um, whereas the first book was, it was set in the inner city. It was a little bit different, you know, and, and I'm not saying that she didn't do a great job. She did a, a fantastic job describing it, uh, but it's not her environment. Um, so she had to research that and she had to, you know, she got it right, but like you could really feel her heart in this. And because of that, you could also feel it in, in the character in Frankie. Yeah, and I know. Yeah, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, Zach. I know that you, with both Empty Bodies and Dead South, uh, location and setting is extremely important in your storytelling. Did you kind of have some of that, um, some of those thoughts too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's part of what I was gonna say was, you know, I, I love how, um, you know, she's really been able to to implement things that she loves. Like it's clear that she loves hiking, <laughs> you know, and and so for her to really get that in her book and you know she's able to go out and do research and stuff hiking like and so she's getting to work and do stuff she loves at the same time um and you get a feel for those locations like you said you know with my books you know stuff usually takes place in mississippi or tennessee uh you know dead south takes place up um in the gatlinburg area where you know i'm probably in one of jd's eight cabins up there um is is where some stories are taking place but um actually in this book i'm working on they're going into north georgia so maybe i need to have them go to your house um that that you bought that you're there and have them find some roaches and stuff in the apocalypse (laughs) but but uh but but no I, i think it's really cool that she was able to uh that she's been able to do that. And like I said, she gets to go out and hike and, and, and work on her stuff at the same time. So it's awesome. You know, one of the other things that she brought up, um, you know, like people today were very dependent on our phones. Um, and not just the telephone aspect of it, but, you know, like GPS and things like that to the point where, and I've seen this happen, you know, like even where I am right now in Georgia, you know, there's mountains all around me. People are out there hiking. They're bringing their iPhone, you know, and they're bringing enough snacks and things to get through their, their couple hour hike. Um, you know, planning for the best, like she said, instead of planning for the worst. And it, it is so simple for that GPS to go out, you know, or for your cell signal to, to get dropped or whatever. And like, you take that away and, and you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere where you, you know, you can't find your way out. And like twisting an ankle is so easy to do. And, you know, doing a couple miles to get back to civilization without, you know, with a twisted ankle is, is extremely difficult. Um, so it, it brings up one of the things that, you know, I always shoot for when I'm writing, you know, horror or suspense is isolation. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to do in today's world because we're you know so connected. Um, but you can do it in a situation like this. You know, you can you can have characters out in the in the woods. You take away that one little thing that they're so dependent on. Take away that GPS, and all of a sudden they're standing there trying to figure out what direction north is. You know, you can guarantee somebody's looking at moss on a tree trying to figure it out that way. Somebody else is staring at the sun. Um, you know, because we've all heard those rumors. We all you know attended Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or something when we were a kid. But who really has the knowledge to be able to pull that off? Um, you know, so all those kind of things. And she pulls that in in this story, which is, you know, fantastic. And I, and I love the dog, too. The, the dog was, was great. And, and again, that comes from Lisa's personal experience. I mean, every ITW Zoom call that we have, you know, her dogs are just as much present in that meeting as she is. Um, so she's surrounded by dogs all the time. She clearly loves them. And, and that came across in, in Daisy. Yeah, I, I was going to bring up the, you know, talk about the phone thing. I mean, that's such a good point. And I, like that's part of the reason I love Ryan post apoc because it's super easy to get rid of phones and, and, and make that isolation. I think it's also like in that genre, you know, EMP stories are so popular right now. And I, that's probably part of the reason why is because if an EMP went off, what would happen to everybody's phones and people would, you know, freaking panic, <laughs> you know, it's almost my, like the movie. Don't look up. If you guys have seen that on Netflix and how everyone's just like looking down their phones the whole time. What were you going to say there? Oh, my wife makes fun of me because when we go hiking, I bring an old school compass with me. 
you know, just an old-fashioned magnetic compass. That's and smart. It's, it's for that same reason, you know, like, in, you know, I've, I've always got a couple extra bottles of water, but, you know, not enough to get through, you know, a couple of days in the woods. But, like, I, I know enough to use that compass. I know enough to follow water. You know, if you find a stream, follow the direction it's going, and it'll take you to civilization. Like, simple things like that. But, um, yeah, because I've, I've read enough of these stories. I, I, you know, and up here in New Hampshire, like, you see it in the newspaper. You know, you hear about the, the you know, this kid and his girlfriend who went hiking and disappeared and everybody's out there searching. You know, they, they give it two days and then it goes from search and rescue to a recovery mission because that's pretty much all the, the time they, they give somebody who's not prepped for it. Um, and, and that's it. You see those stories over and over again. I think, too, what I really what really hit me in, in talking to Lisa and in and reading this newest book is that you don't need to overcomplicate things. And and I, yeah. at least as a master, I mean, you know, she she's been doing this for a long time, but it's a good lesson in storytelling. In that, um, yes, you can have very complex, complicated stories, and those can be entertaining. And if you're George R. R. Martin, you can pull that off. Uh, but if if you also you can also go in the other direction, and you can strip away almost everything except a few characters and an obstacle. And you can tell a really compelling story doing that. And, and I, I think that's a really, uh, I find that inspirational that you, you just don't need to, you don't need to cr make things more complicated than they need to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. And I, I'm consciously trying to rein it in you know, because I, I see the, the potential for a twist in a story, knowing that it'll throw the reader, you know, also throws the writing. Uh, but there's something to be said for just going from A to B to C to D and just keep it interesting. You know, if your characters are strong, and I, I really do think every good book comes to, down to strong characters before plot. You know, as long as your characters are strong, you can you just follow them along. You know, it's like a, a camera. You know, you're just a voyeur just watching what happens. And it can be a very simple, you know, linear tale. But as long as those characters are strong and their actions are strong, it, it, it holds water and it works. I want to bring up too that uh, I I love her whole thing, and I know you guys talked about it in the previous episode, but uh, about her website and how you can nominate people to get killed in her book. <laughs> That's I think, and I nominate Jay right now. Just a heads up that that needs to happen. He needs an awesome like have that plant behind him strangle him or something like that. I don't know, but uh, but I just think that's such that's just such a cool idea, and that's a really. That, that's such a neat way to get your fans involved in your work. I mean, like if, you know, if I was reading a book by, you know, one of my favorite authors, uh, we'll just say JD, I guess, I guess I kind of like what he writes. And, and I was, let's say I was a big fan of JD and I, and I saw I could like, you know, kill one of my friends or myself in his book. Like that would be amazing. I just think that's such a cool idea. It's funny with working with Patterson. One of the things that he does is he auctions off the character names in a lot of his books. Um, you know, for charities and stuff like that. So like I, cool. one of the things that we do with every book that we write is we have to have a master list of all the characters and which ones can basically, you know, work as this, you know, we can just swap out a name kind of deal. Because a lot of, like, I put a lot of thought into my character names. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, um, I do too. But, you know, like, I, I try to find something unique. I make sure that it's age appropriate and, you know, like everything fits. Um, yeah, but he, he likes to do that. So, I'm, you know, that's something I'm always conscious of. Like, you know, this particular character name is a throwaway. It's going to get replaced with some guy at a, you know, who outbid somebody else at a table down in Palm Beach, you know, two years from now, that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to touch on something else because it was kind of, a, it just happened at the end. You know, she was talking about the, um, the TV show, you know, how, how this, her first book got optioned um, by E1. Um, I've got the noise over at E1 with Patterson. So, I'm, you know, they're at a great company. Um, but one of the things that she pointed out, and she just kind of glossed over it, you know, they're basically digging into this. They're making this show without knowing where it's going to go. And it kind of plays back to what we were talking about at the beginning. They're creating content. 
Um, you know, they, they don't really care that they don't have a studio at this point. They know that they've got a product, and they're going to create that product, and then they're going to shop it around. Um, and I'm seeing this happen more and more, and I think a lot of it has to come down to licensing. So, like, instead of actually selling, like, they'll, they'll create, you know, we'll just say any TV show. It doesn't have to be Lisa's or one of mine or whatever. Um, but they create this television show. They get it in the can. It's done. It's a product. But rather than sell it to a studio, they license it to a studio for a certain amount of time, you know, for three years, let's say. And then in three years, they can license it again to somebody else and again to somebody else and again to somebody else. And as long as it's a you know, company like E1, the content creator behind it, who has no you know, affiliation with a particular studio, they can bounce that around to highest bidder and keep, you know, it becomes a moneymaker for them. No different than our, our back catalog in books. Um, versus the other route, which is you know kind of the way things have always been done. You know, a studio gets on board, so you know, production company you know, creates everything. They pitch it. They might create the first episode as kind of a teaser. They use that first episode to rope the studio in. The studio signs on board, fronts the rest of the money, then they create the rest of the season. When you go that route, that particular studio you know, basically has those rights, and it really it handcuffs you because if you think about it, you know, let's say you go with a company like Paramount, you know, they're going to want to put it on Paramount Plus. And it's going to stay on Paramount Plus. You're never going to see it on Netflix. You're never going to see it on any of the other streaming services. Um, so it's either going to live on Paramount Plus or it's going to die on Paramount Plus. But it's never going to actually go anywhere. So this other route, you know, like she had kind of mentioned, is you know, it, it allows a lot more doors to be open and allows for a longer, you know, um, life cycle for for that particular thing. So I, I've got a feeling that we're going to see this industry kind of head in that direction as well. You know, the, the Hollywood side of it. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, a lot of the momentum right now is in serialized TV instead of uh, feature films. So yeah, honestly, that that too. Like every conversation I'm having now is, you know, let's make this work as a limited series for the same reasons that she touched on. You know, like you can basically tell the entire story from the book in, in six to ten episodes or whatever it takes um, without having to cut things out. You don't have to cut it, you know, down to thirty thousand words. You know, like she said. And, and I'll say too, like as. M- the my two favorite things I've watched in the past, God, I don't know how long, several years were both limited series, were Station Eleven and Midnight Mass, which I don't, which I think is limited as well, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, so like I can, I, that's a trend I could definitely see, you know, pick, picking up some steam as well. So, which I kind of like because a lot of times, you know, we get invested in these shows and these companies are creating so many shows that like stuff ends up getting canceled, you know, a lot of times too. And then you never really get to see the end. So that's one really cool thing about these limited series too. So yeah, really interesting to see where all that's going. Yeah. Yeah. It was always fun to talk to Lisa. I said, uh, she, she knows the industry inside and out and, uh, and a great writer. So that, that was super cool. All right. Next week. Who do we have up JD? Uh, so I've been hounding this guy for a while, and he finally finally caved. I guess he figured it was easier than pulling a restraining order on me. Uh, Dean Koontz is going to be coming on. Um, you know, household name for sure. Everybody knows who Dean is. Uh, number one New York Times bestseller. He's been around forever. Um, his latest book is called Quicksilver, and it releases on January 25th. Um, this is one, you know, as a listener, you don't want to miss this because this, you know, this guy rarely does appearances and he's pulling back the curtain. He's going to let us in on some of his secrets that have, have kept him going all these years. Um, I, I can't wait for this one. Yeah, me too. I have to come up with a really good opening question for him. <laughs> <laughs> good luck with that. All right. Uh, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. 
Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.